It's a classic scene in any police TV show, the breathalyzer test for drunk drivers. When someone fails to walk in a straight line or stand on one leg after being pulled over, the officer pulls out a breath test, and if the suspect fails, they're taken to the police station for further testing. But some strange lawsuits against companies that make breath test equipment prompted Stacey Cowley of the New York Times to take a closer look. And the takeaway we had is, look, these tests are actually generally reliable when the machines are programmed correctly, used correctly, calibrated correctly, and maintained correctly, you get pretty accurate results. But we found a surprising to us number of cases where that wasn't happening, and we were struck by how rarely those come to light because of all of the secrecy and lack of oversight involved in this process. The Times found thousands of DUI cases thrown out by state courts because of unreliable breath test machines. Some were testing 20 to 40 percent higher than they should have, meaning innocent people were wrongly charged with driving under the influence. So in the end, we ended up with every breath test in Massachusetts for a period of eight years being inadmissible in court, which created a problem for the 28,000 or so people who had already been convicted or pleaded guilty based on the results of those tests. But Stacy and her team didn't stop with Massachusetts. They looked at cases in several states, going back more than 10 years to get a full grasp on the issues surrounding alcohol breath test machines. On today's episode, Stacy takes us behind her reporting and the consequences of those faulty tests. I'm Kelly Knoyer, and you're listening to the IRE Radio Podcast. Stacy is a business reporter, so she initially viewed this investigation from the perspective of corporate secrecy. But while the companies that make breath testing equipment can be secretive, she found that it often wasn't their fault when things went awry. I think the finding that sort of started to change where we were going with this project was discovering that in states like Massachusetts and in several other places, when lawyers started digging into does the machine's technology work the way it's supposed to, they almost always more quickly hit an issue of human error. And that sort of changed the trajectory of what we were working on. Breath alcohol testers are precise scientific instruments that, to work properly, require a lot of careful calibration by law enforcement agencies. But the reporters found a lot of jurisdictions where that level of care didn't happen. Miscalibrated machines in Washington, D.C. were registering results that were 20 to 40 percent too high, Stacy found. Quality control measures in Washington state were never added. And in Minnesota, quality controls were turned off when the machines malfunctioned. We saw so many jurisdictions where there were shortcuts, there was a lack of oversight, there was shoddy work done, and the result is you end up with tests that you don't know if they're reliable or not. Colorado was a particularly troubling example. Back in 2013, when Colorado was setting up its new fleet of devices, there had been a whole bunch of just process breakdowns in the lab. They were rushing to get these things deployed, they were scrambling. They used a bunch of uh, minimally trained personnel. They used an intern. They used a salesperson from the device maker to help them set up and calibrate these machines. And they also uh, took some shortcuts. People with no real technical experience were setting up the breath test machines, devices that could land people in jail. So all of this comes out and it becomes clear that, you know, this was not the most rigorous and carefully overseen process. And as this goes to the courts, it eventually gets uh, blown up. 
it turned out that on top of all else, they had been using a signature on these things saying, hey, all of this is calibrated correctly from the lab's technical director, and she didn't actually know her signature was being used on these machines, at which point the court said, hey, you can't do that. These, you know, these test results are out. Stacy found numerous ways for a test to end up unreliable. And that variety meant it was hard to pinpoint just one bad actor. Our editors always ask us at the start of these kinds of stories, who's the villain? Who's knowingly doing wrong here? And I'm a business reporter, so often the answer is, you know, a company is doing something knowingly to maximize its profit or something along those lines. That really wasn't the case here. And it was sort of a hard discussion to keep having with our editors to say, we don't think anyone in this process is knowingly being malicious. We honestly think this is a case of accidents, oversights, mistakes, you know, human error. Stacy initially found this story at a cybersecurity conference in 2018, where she heard about a bizarre lawsuit that piqued her interest. Two tech guys had been hired by some defense attorneys to look into the legitimacy of breath test machines. I had heard chatter that there, uh, that there was this litigation was happening and that they had hired some expert witnesses who had compiled a preliminary report and then got hit with a cease and desist order after they circulated that report. And I thought that sounded intriguing, so I started looking into that. When she contacted those experts, they were willing to talk about the existence of the report, but they couldn't legally discuss any of its contents. That bizarre anecdote was the start of Stacy's reporting. It also led her to dozens of other legal cases across the country related to alcohol breath test companies. While she looked for more documents on that first case, she started seeking other examples, too. We put out a call to sort of the defense bar. Uh, DUI lawyers are a pretty tight-knit and chatty community. They have some mailing lists that they often hang out on. So a couple of DUI lawyers helped us out and sent notes on these mailing lists saying, hey, these reporters are starting to dig on this topic. If you have an interesting story, you know, get in touch. Defense attorneys helped her find a few unusual cases, but some states had thrown out thousands of cases because of questionable test results. So in places where we saw that large numbers of cases had been thrown out, like Massachusetts, like Washington, D.C., like New Jersey, we filed FOIA requests uh, to get lists of all of the affected cases. So... We got those lists, we created these giant spreadsheets, and we started basically cold calling our way through a lot of those lists. Once she had all the court cases, Stacy realized this story had legs, and she decided she might need some help. It became clear pretty quickly I was going to need a partner on this project. Um, so my partner, Jessica Silver-Greenberg, is someone I've worked with before on projects. She came back from maternity leave, and I think I grabbed her the day she came back and said, Jess, I'm working on this crazy story. Here's 4,000 documents I've got. Help me with this. Jessica helped her dig through documents and write the investigation, and she offered insights Stacy might have otherwise missed. I mean, one of the things uh, that's nice about the Times is they very much encourage this kind of collaboration. It's not something I'd really done a lot of as a journalist until I came to work here, but I found for larger projects it's just so incredibly helpful to have a second brain there with you. The two of them started analyzing their findings, and the court cases showed that breath test machines were often miscalibrated and unreliable. Take Massachusetts, for example. There were definitely software mistakes that they uncovered that the manufacturer then had to go and fix. But in the process of this, what really came out was that the lab, in setting up and calibrating these machines, 
had not been following any kind of written protocol. It was all sort of being done by word of mouth. And the judge ended up ruling and saying, look, the machines themselves are scientifically reliable, but the lab's protocols were not reliable. So because of that, I'm throwing out all of these tests for the entire period that the lab was not following reliable protocols. Defense attorneys across the country were suspicious of the machines and wanted to get more information about them to better serve their clients. In 2016, Massachusetts defense attorneys finally won a case giving them access to the breath test machines. They found a lot of problems that called the test results into question. And in 2017, a judge ruled in their favor and threw out thousands of cases that relied on the tests. So in the end, we ended up with every breath test in Massachusetts for a period of eight years being inadmissible in court which created a problem for the 28,000 or so people who had already been convicted or pleaded guilty based on the results of those tests. One of those cases nearly ruined Matthew Motor's life. His story put a face on the Times investigation. He was the case we ended up deciding to focus on because his was the most ambiguous. Uh, He had been convicted on a breath test that was 0.08, which is exactly on the limit, and had a backstory to the situation. He'd been out rafting down a river and drinking beer with some friends. Uh, His argument was he thinks that there's no way he was that inebriated based on a couple of beers over the course of six or seven hours. So his case was a little ambiguous about, you know, was he drunk? Was the machine wrong? A state trooper in Massachusetts had told Motors' friends to leave a park because one person in the group was just too inebriated. The same trooper pulled Motor over almost as soon as he started driving, something his lawyer later called entrapment. Motor passed two out of three field sobriety tests, but failed to walk in a straight line, possibly, he said, because of metal plates in his ankles and feet. He blew a .13 on the field test and was taken to the station for another test on a machine that would be admissible in court. There, he blew a .08, exactly the legal limit. You know, this is not a minor offense. A DUI conviction is life-changing. For many people, it causes them problems with their job, often problems with their relationship. We saw quite a number of people who were pushed into bankruptcy or onto state assistance because of DUI convictions. And in Matt's case, he works as a chef. Uh, Had he lost his driver's license permanently, he would have lost his job. Motor fought the charges and even went to trial, but didn't know his case should have been thrown out. The judge in Massachusetts had already ruled a year or so before Matthew was tried that this breath test was not admissible. But information travels very piecemeal throughout the legal system. So the prosecutor who tried Matthew went ahead and tried the case anyway, even though that breath test was not supposed to be admissible. So Matthew gets convicted. He starts looking at his appeal options and pretty quickly finds out himself that there's this larger case going on and his test should never have been admitted. Five years after his initial arrest, and just a few weeks after his conviction, Motor asked that his case be reopened. This time, a prosecutor let him plead to a lesser charge. But Motor is still dealing with the consequences of his legal fight. He had to hire lawyers, and that's not cheap. So he ended up spending about $30,000 over the five years that his case progressed on legal fees. And despite his case eventually being thrown out and pleaded down, Uh, That's not money he's getting back, so he's still paying off now, years later. Not every overturned conviction in Massachusetts was as ambiguous as Motors. Some arrested drivers had long records of drunk driving. You know, in one case, someone had uh, been veering all over the road, had been 
can hit a pedestrian, uh, had a fair number of signs of inebriation, had failed field sobriety tests. But once the test results were excluded, he ended up getting acquitted. And we found multiple cases like that. Those cases seemed unjust for a whole different reason. Faulty breath tests didn't just ensnare innocent drivers. They also let dangerous drivers stay behind the wheel. And what started us down that path was I had talked to a local prosecutor who said, hey, this has really been hurting us. Having these breath tests thrown out means we're really having trouble winning a lot of these cases that we think we should be winning. Stacy tracked down a few of the drivers in those cases. She pulled a list together and went door to door in Massachusetts. She talked to one guy who admitted to drinking three or four beers before he was arrested for backing into a woman in the parking lot of a liquor store. The officer said the driver had slurred speech and the odor of an alcoholic beverage emanating from him. His two breath samples were both well over the legal limit. But when his breath test was tossed out, he was acquitted. I think like many reporters, knocking on doors is not my favorite thing. So that was kind of a harrowing moment. Uh, But that person was very amenable to talking to us about this. When I spoke with him, he was very adamant that he did not think he was drunk at the time and that the test was unreliable. So it's one of those ones that's hard to know what the truth there is. That source made it into a documentary The Times produced for its Hulu TV show, The Weekly. Working with TV crews was a new experience for Stacy. She had to learn a new style of interviewing to get useful footage for the documentary. I'm typically used to sitting in interviews and just very rapid fire trying to get information from people. I can blow through a list of questions and get, you know, tangible details pretty quick. For TV, you're much more focused on kind of trying to convey the emotional impact of what's going on. So I found we had to really slow down a lot of our questions, really focus on higher level questions. It was just a very interesting experience of trying to navigate that difference between what makes good TV and what gets you the facts you need for a print report. Stacy found that preparation was key for a good TV interview. You only get one shot to record everything you need, whereas print reporters can call back over and over to get more information. I certainly came away with a much deeper appreciation for the interviewing skills of TV reporters. It's really a completely different kind of reporting. Stacy says the story was widely read when the Times published it in November 2019. We certainly heard from prosecutors, cops, and lawyers about it. On both sides, uh, we've heard from some that say, hey, yeah, I've, I've had issues in the past with unreliable results. I'm glad this is getting attention. We've also heard from some who are like, this is a complete disservice. These tests are generally reliable, and you're spreading fear and doubt about this and potentially helping drunk drivers you know, get acquitted. So it's a complicated issue, and we sort of really tried to keep that in mind through the reporting. Despite the complexities of the issue, Stacy says she thinks there's a clear solution to prevent some of the most common problems. So we came away feeling like the answer here is really transparency and oversight. And I think one of the ironies of this is that the areas we ended up focusing on and that other reporters have written about actually tend to be the places where there is a fair bit of transparency in the process because that's how the mistakes get discovered. Stacy has continued reporting on these issues. A second story on breath tests looked at the ignition interlock devices that some drivers are forced to install after being convicted of a DUI. The machines require drivers to blow into a tube before they can start their car. But Stacy found safety concerns with those tests in certain states. You have to blow into the device to start your car, 
but you also have to blow into the device while you're driving. It's called a rolling retest. They want to make sure that you're not drinking while you're driving. But in an era when we're concerned about people being distracted while driving, when we don't let people check their cell phones while driving, having to sit there and fumble with a machine and do a breath test while you're on the road can be a real challenge. She found dozens of cases where those rolling retests caused accidents, including fatalities. For reporters interested in covering these issues, Stacy has a few tips. You know, you will certainly find any number of local lawyers who are very, very eager to give you information. Uh, take it all with a grain of salt. The defense bar is known for being, you know, hyperbolic about this issue. So start asking around, start trying to gather some documents, see what court cases are out there, see what's arisen in your jurisdiction, and ask, you know, ask the local state labs about how their, what their procedures are, about what the oversight is here, what the level of transparency around the results are, and things like that. Thanks for listening. Take a look at our episode notes for links to the New York Times reporting and the weekly documentary about alcohol breath tests. You can subscribe to the podcast on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, SoundCloud, and Google Play. And you can spend hours listening to the stories behind some of the best investigative reporting in the country at ire.org podcast. The IRE Radio Podcast is recorded in the studios of KBIA. Sarah Hutchins is our editor. From Columbia, Missouri, I'm Kelly Knoyer. Podcast. Podcast. You might want to do that already. Cool. Okay. Podcast.